As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Back in 2004, a young guy called Colin Huang joined Google as a computer programmer. His timing couldn't have been better. He arrived at Google just a few months before it went public, which meant Colin was given stock in the company just as Google's value was about to surge. Three years later, Colin's stock was worth several million dollars. This young man from a Chinese family of very modest means was now a millionaire many times over. The thing is, if he had just stayed at Google, Colin would have been able to cash in on even more Google stock and gotten a lot richer. How does it feel to leave that money on the table? It's not a very big decision for me, actually. Well, it sounds like a big decision, but at least at that time, it was fairly easy for me. Not a lot of people would choose to walk away from so much money. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. But Colin was confident that he was making the right choice. I think I will will be rich. I think I will be, well, I was fairly confident that I will be successful in business. So I think um, the time is more precious to me. Today we can tell you that Colin turned out to be right. He went on to create not just one, but four companies in China as the country's startup scene was taking off. He's become rich as a result, and he's just getting started. Hi, I'm Aki Ito. And I'm Peter Alstrom. And I'm David Ramley. And this week on Decrypted, we're going to hear from Colin about his journey from the vegetable fields of rural Hangzhou to the pinnacle of success in China's booming startup scene. China still has a reputation as a copycat. Baidu is China's Google, Alibaba is China's Amazon, even the smartphone maker Xiaomi is mostly known as the local answer to Apple. But founders like Colin are shattering those old ideas. So far this year, China has created just as many billion-dollar startups as the U.S. We'll explore the role that Colin Huang and entrepreneurs like him could play in the next phase of the global tech industry. And with these new Chinese companies aspiring to global success, should Silicon Valley be worried about these upstart rivals? Stay with us. set the scene for us here. Well, it was a beautiful sunny April day, perhaps the best time to visit. Shanghai has a population of more than 24 million people, by some measures the largest city in the world. It's a financial center and a transportation hub sitting at the mouth of the Yangtze River. For centuries, it's been a critical port for trade between China and the rest of the world. 
Mm, and, you know, like most Chinese cities these days, Shanghai is home to quite a few up-and-coming startups. And even though we still use this word startup to describe these companies, in reality, some of these are massive businesses, right? That's right. Uh, there are some enormous private companies in China. In fact, the seven most valuable startups, according to the research firm CB Insights, four of those top seven are Chinese. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, some of them are gradually becoming household names outside of China. You know, uh, Alibaba is pretty well known um, as the startup that succeeded. Uh, and you've also got the likes of Xiaomi and, you know, uh, other companies like that. And you're seeing real innovations come out of China, too, in particular Tencent, which is probably a bit less well known outside of China than Alibaba is. They've been able to pioneer their messaging service, WeChat, in a way that is is beyond some of the things that we've seen in the West. It has payments included in it and all sorts of apps wrapped into the service. And on this particular trip, you guys went out to Shanghai to go visit Colin's latest company called Pinduoduo. That's right. It's PDD for short, as he likes to call it. This company's two years old, and it's grown so fast that it's now the largest private e-commerce company in China based on revenue volume. And David, what was it like inside their offices? Well, it's an interesting mix, actually. You've got a lot of waterways to boost the feng shui of the place, but it's also hectic. Uh, you walk down corridors filled with desks, and on them are engineers typing away or sleeping. Uh, unlike most other countries, engineers in China are not only permitted, but actually encouraged to take naps whenever they're tired. I've been to some with cots inside rooms. Wow. And PDD must have a pretty impressive valuation at this point. Well, it's still a private company, so this is a valuation on paper. But investors valued the company at about $1.5 billion after a recent fundraising round. That's more than 10 million RMB. Yeah, and Colin says that gross merchandise volume, or GMV as it's called in in the e-commerce industry, has now reached about 4 billion renminbi per month. Uh, The renminbi is the Chinese currency. to be something like an e-commerce version of Facebook. And Peter, what does he mean by that? PDD is sort of like a mashup between a social network and an online shopping app. A few companies have tried this before, mostly without very much success. And now PDD is really unlike any other company out there. Competitors are either just doing e-commerce. So for Alibaba, for Taobao, or for Amazon, they're... They're just like a search engine, right? The search engine serves a scenario where a user has a specific purpose. Or they're just in social networking. When you go to Facebook, a lot of times you just browse. You have nothing to do. You're just trying to waste your time. But Colin didn't get here overnight. And his journey to this point is so unlikely, it's pretty incredible that it happened at all. So I was born in Hangzhou, but not in the, uh, in the center of the city. I was born on the border of the city. And my parents are very normal people. They're both of them are factory workers. None of them finished junior high. I was pretty good at the math. And I got a medal from one of the uh, 
Olympic competitions in mathematics. So I got a um, entrance exam ticket to apply to the high school I eventually went to, which is Hangzhou Foreign Language School. Hangzhou Foreign Language School. It's one of the most selective high schools in the whole province. At first, Colin didn't even want to go. Because the name of the school is says Foreign Language School, right? Because I was very uh, into mathematics and the physics and all those. And so I was telling uh, my teachers yeah, I, and then my parents, I don't want to go to that school because <laughs> I don't want to study English. <laughs> Colin was only 12 at the time, and the president of the school persuaded him to go. So he went, and it changed his life. It opened my eyes, right, of very different kind of um, different kind of families. And uh, for instance, at that time, as I remember, uh, the daughter of the mayor of the city at that time was in my class. Um, well, for kids like me, the mayor of the city is a very big, big boss, right? <laughs> Changing schools was one of the early experiences that helped Colin grow more confident and evolve from a country kid to feeling more comfortable with the best, the brightest, and more importantly, the most powerful people in China. Colin went on to Zhejiang University and studied computer science. Then he made another move that changed his life. He applied to graduate school in the United States. What were your first impressions when you went to US? Wisconsin in the US? Um, it was really cold. It's really cold. Um, and the food is not so delicious. <laughs> mm, other than that, it's pretty good. So now Colin is in his early 20s, and he's at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. At that time, Wisconsin ran one of the most well-recognized computer science programs in the country. It was a prestigious place for Colin to study, and it had the potential to open up a lot of doors for him. But Colin's biggest issue, at least at the beginning, was homesickness. Um, but the food was so, you know, it's a big problem for me. I, I just cannot... I miss the Chinese food at that moment, so I took a half TA um, at a school so that I have extra money to go to the Chinese restaurant <laughs> almost every for every meal. <laughs> for anyone who didn't go to college in the US, a TA is short for teaching assistant. It's a way for students to earn a little extra money. Colin did internships and got to know prospective employers. He interned at Microsoft in China and then at the company's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. He found out one important thing about the economics of working in the two countries. I, uh, I think in my last year of, uh, of my undergraduate, um, I went to Beijing uh, to be a visiting student or an intern of Microsoft Research Asia. So I, yeah, so I, I did an intern there for like three or four months in Beijing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, at that time, I think I got 6,000 RMB a month, which is, which is already more than the salary of my, my mom. <laughs> um, much more, actually. <laughs> um, then I went to University of Wisconsin, and in the first summer in U.S., I went to uh, Microsoft Redmond. Um, and the salary was six thousand U.S. dollars. Wow! And the same person, you know. So and roughly seven times as much. Seven times, yeah, seven times as much. At that time, it's actually eight times. Eight times. Eight times as much. When he was getting ready to graduate, Microsoft wanted to hire him, and so did a bunch of other top U.S. tech companies. So my professor uh, wrote me, uh, I think like several letters to like Oracle, Microsoft, IBM. Um, so I got acceptance uh, from, from those three. So at this point, most people in Colin's situation would be over the moon choosing between three of the world's biggest, best tech companies. That's something that most engineers like him can only wish for. Colin did something that was really unexpected. He actually went to Google's website and he applied for a job. Remember, at this time, Google was just a startup with a few thousand employees. It had a promising product and there was a lot of buzz around the company, but it was certainly no Microsoft. Microsoft was really famous at that time, right? And, um, and it's very established and, and if you want to get a green card is probably the best place to go. Um, and, but the thing is that after interned twice and like spent more than half a year at Microsoft, right? Both, uh, both in China and in the US, I found that the, the company, it's a very good company, but it's just that I was a very too small part of that, right? I had very little influence on what's going on in Microsoft. And I can imagine who I will be like six years down the road. Colin says he always knew he eventually wanted to start his own company. I would rather choose something unknown. Although it may become something worse, but it could be better. <laughs> because... It's something uncertain, right? And right there, that day, Colin's decision in 2004 may have been the first time that Colin really showed that he was different. He didn't want security. He didn't chase after the green card and the high salary. He went after uncertainty. He went after risk. And it paid off. Oh, it paid off big. Uh, in the three years Colin was at Google, its share price went from about 85 bucks a share to more than $500. His options were worth a fortune. So at 27, he was ready to strike out on his own. It's probably worth noting here for our listeners that China's had an uneven history with private enterprise. The Communist Party won control of the country after World War II and it socialized much of the economy. It wasn't until the economic reforms of Deng Xiaoping in the late 1980s and the early 90s that entrepreneurs were finally encouraged to start businesses. He opened the door to a new era, uh, the quote, to get rich is glorious. 
So it's really only one generation after China deregulated its economy that Colin Huang, at the age of 27, decides he's going to leave Google and the chance to make millions more if he stays to start his first company. We asked him why. Because of my father, I think. Um, although he's a, um, he only probably spent two to three years in the primary school, but and he himself is not a successful businessman, right? But he always wanted me to be a successful businessman. Colin sold his first company after about three years. He went on to start two more companies with his partners, and those ventures did so well that he had enough money to stop working. At the time, I was not that old yet, right? So I was thinking, what should I do, right? Um, should I just go back to U.S. and do a hedge fund and um, try to be smart in the uh, secondary market or or try to do something different or to run a business which is uh, more influential or a different business model. The idea he eventually came up with is a combination of social networking and online commerce. A few companies have tried social e-commerce, including Facebook and Twitter, but none of those experiments have really worked out very well. I, well, I, I didn't know exactly how to do a social e-commerce, but I just have a very strong feeling that... Um, with the booming of the social media, there got to be a, a commercial, mod, commercial model that can monetize the, the social traffic. That's one kind of belief I had at the time. And the second thing that um, I think if there is a social commerce or a commerce model that e-commerce model that leverages the social media, then the team we had at the time is probably the one that is most competitive in that area. That's because companies number two and three that Colin founded were a back-end services company for retailers wanting to sell online and a gaming company. This new venture drew on the experience Colin had gained in both of those industries. He raised venture capital in May of 2015 and launched the app a few months later. The Pinduoduo app quickly proved pretty addictive. So David, how do people use the app? Most people use it within WeChat, which is the ubiquitous messaging service in China. You open up WeChat and you search for PDD's micro store and the home screen comes up. It's got tabs like food, clothes and bedding. Once you pick a category, you get a vertical list of products that you can scroll through, say lychees or apples in the fruit section. I'm looking at it now and I can see a whole bunch of weird looking tops and what looks to be some rip-off uh, Dora the Explorer slippers. The app has the feel of a game. Colorful photos and hidden bargains, deals change every day. And as you scroll through a category, the discounted price is shown below the image. For example, you click on an image of eight mangoes with the price tag of 34.8 yuan. But when you actually go through to it, you find the price is actually 39 yuan if you buy it alone. To get the discount, you actually have to find a friend to join in the purchase. 
but because you're already on WeChat, it's pretty quick to instantly pitch to others. The most successful result of this design is that um, a lot of people are spreading words of PDD by themselves, right, uh, without any TV commercial. Um, that's really something hard to achieve. PDD went from gross merchandise volume of about 100 million renminbi a month in early 2016 to 3 billion by December. The company has now got over 4 billion RMB per month, or more than half a billion dollars in GMV. One of Colin's top priorities now is dealing with counterfeit products. China, of course, has a long history of fake goods being sold both online and offline, and about 200 of Colin's 700 employees at PDD are working on quality control. These are workers dealing with customer complaints about fake and damaged goods. But then PDD has to go to its merchants and persuade them to actually compensate customers. More difficult, it has to convince them to stop selling these goods altogether. And what was the reaction like? Well, here's what Colin told us. They even sent people to the office just to, uh, like, threat our employees, right? Like in the middle of the night. And uh, in the old building. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's why you have the security guys. Yes, yes, yes. They even like a slash in, into the faces of some of our employees. Um, so that, that's the things already happened. Um, not only that, they even um, chase um, our employees back to their homes, like even in Hangzhou, and like uh, when kind of threatened their their wife, uh, their wives and the kids. Colin Huang and PDD are an example of how China's technology industry is changing. There's more venture capital money, more entrepreneurs and more startups that work on real innovations. Ten years ago, when I started my first company, I think uh, almost all the people are focusing on commercial success. Uh, they don't really care. I do exactly the same thing. But now, I think a small group of Chinese entrepreneurs are gradually um, sort of care more about the things the Silicon Valley cares, which is the novelty of your idea, right? Um, the, the creativeness and uh, whether this is something cool or not, right? People will look at you um, whether um, you're doing novel things, whether you're really contributing value to the society, um, these things are gradually kind of uh, growing. So Peter, that's an amazing quote from Colin because he sounds just like <laughs> everyone else in Silicon Valley here. What's your take on where China's tech industry is right now and where the ecosystem is for startups? Well, just the past few years, you've seen a real increase in the amount of venture capital money moving into these startups. Uh, and you've seen a lot of very big companies uh, coming out of China. Some of the best known are Didi, for example, the ride hailing app. But there's also um, a whole series of other ones that are not as well known outside of China. 
David, for you as a reporter covering the tech industry in Beijing, it must be a pretty exciting time. No, it is.、Uh, every single time I go out to meet a startup, it's really interesting to see the little things of what they're doing. You know, if they're not if they're not sleeping on couches or you know at their own desks, then frankly, by the Chinese standard, they're just not working hard enough. I went to one place,、um, which actually、uh, it's a startup that does.、Um, Part-time job searches, and they actually had a small room right next to the CEO's office where they had、uh, three bunk beds for sales staff to sleep when they'd worked too hard into the night. Earlier on in the show, we talked about how Colin isn't the only serial entrepreneur out there. That there are now quite a few people in China who are on their second, third, fourth, maybe even fifth startup, like a lot of the famous founders here in Silicon Valley. Um, Peter and David, can you talk about some of the other people who are like this in China? One of the other serial entrepreneurs is Lei Jun.、Uh, he's been involved in a number of startups. Most recently,、uh, uh, Xiaomi, the smartphone maker,、uh, it's been giving Apple and Samsung challenges within the country. It's been expanding outside of China, particularly in India. And now Xiaomi is diversifying beyond smartphones into all sorts of other products. And you've also got、uh, Tencent's Pony Ma. I mean, his main company is listed now, but it continues to be a factory of startups churning out new products and new services. Some of them that copy each other every single day. With China's new push to innovate, I asked whether this is a threat to the U.S. dominance of the technology industry. I wouldn't say it's a threat.、Uh, I I wouldn't say it's a complimentary. <laughs> It's just that, like, people are doing different things, and like, we're trying to find the areas we can do better. But Colin doesn't think there is an equivalent to PDD in either Shanghai or Silicon Valley. He's told some investors it's got the potential of growing to become one of the biggest e-commerce giants in China. Well, if it's a, if it's only. Um, a little dog. I shouldn't. I shouldn't want him to be an elephant, right? If by nature it's an elephant, then I shouldn't be satisfied, or I shouldn't kind of try to control the elephant to be a dog, right? So. If it's an elephant, then it has to grow to be an elephant to be healthy, <sighs> right? So it's really a question of whether the e-commerce version of Facebook, how big it is. Well, I thought it was a mouse. Now then, I think it's a dog. Now I think probably, maybe, <laughs> it's an elephant, but I'm not sure. <laughs> For this week's decrypted, thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Record a voice message and send it to us at decrypted@bloomberg.net, or I'm on Twitter. It's at pelstrom, and you can reach me at david ramley. 
And I'm at Aki Ito7. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps more listeners find this show. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. A big thanks to Robin Agello, who edited the print story David Ramley and I wrote about Colin Wong and PDD. You can find it at Bloomberg.com slash tech. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Jamie Tarabay, host of Foundering. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with star athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.